Welcome to the Ask a Cycling Coach podcast presented by Trainer Road. Today, we're going to talk about how to win a bike race. We'll also probably talk about how to not win a bike race, right? Um, I think that we'll probably <laughs> cover that. We are going to talk about whether the recovery window is a myth and what you can do with that information and how it should change your behavior, or how it shouldn't change your behavior. And in addition to that, we'll also talk about high intensity interval training, but the strength training kind, like when those two were met. And if us cyclists should avoid it, we'll also cover a handful of other topics, but, um, we should just get right into it. We have pivot cycles and DT Swiss's Hannah, fin Hannah auto, forgive me with us. Uh, good to have you, Hannah. Hi everyone. And our head coach, Chad Timmerman. Um, hey everybody. Good to see you, Chad. Uh, Chad's coming off the, the coming off being sick too. Mm. Uh, impressive mm -hmm. Chad. Glad you're here. Thanks. Pulling through. Okay. Vince says, uh, long time listener. And I've been using trainer row for a little over a year and increased my FTP from 280 Watts to 320 Watts while going from 180 pounds to 155 pounds. Vince, holy cow. That is substantial improvement. Um, very, very good improvement. Uh, with the early race season upon us and a newfound fitness advantage as a cat four, I'm wondering how to best translate this fitness into hard fun racing. I recently did a flat circuit race with an uphill finish and I sprint and sprinted to fourth from the bunch after being in a two man break for a lap and a half. We got caught with about a lap to go. I'm both happy with the result and frustrated that I couldn't animate the race and finish on empty at the finish. I was fatigued from sprinting, but I feel that letting a large cat four or five race come to a sprint leaves a lot more to chance than would typically be involved in an uphill finish. And I feel like finishing this way didn't indicate what I feel to be my fitness potential. One other thing that I realized while in the break is that transferring the Watts, I know I can do training in training to the outside context. Isn't as straightforward as I thought. So my question is twofold. Number one, how can I race to utilize my fitness against what I viewed as weaker competition while still making the race exciting? And what can I work on to produce the power? I know I'm capable of outside and PS by exciting. I mean, fun and dynamic rather than coasting along in a bunch doing low Watts. I know that that may be the best chance to win, but I enjoy racing really hard more than I enjoy waiting around in a pack. Uh, thank you. Uh, let's go to, I'm really curious on Chad's thoughts on this. I want to go to Hannah's thoughts too, because I know Hannah, you've like, you're not this single discipline athlete. Like you've done a lot of different disciplines of racing. So you've probably been like in this scenario, I wouldn't be surprised in the sense of, you know, road racing and those tactics, but then also with lifetime grand prix stuff group tactics are a huge part of it. So what would you say to this situation of like balancing? I want it to be fun, uh, but I want to win <laughs> and like executing and actually like making those wins happen. Yeah. I think that you have to have a goal for the race. Um, it's difficult to have your cake and eat it too. Uh, and by that, I mean, it is hard to say, Oh, I want to win but I also want to have fun and I also want to be in the break and I also want to have the highest power of everybody. You need to pick your one overarching goal. And if other things happen within that, great. But if your goal is to win, then you need to focus on that. There are no points for winning by a lot or winning with a certain power number. And similarly, if you don't win, Nobody cares what your power numbers are either. Uh, and that seems, it seems really obvious, but I can't tell you how many times, you know, uh, and I've had these thoughts as well and heard other people or talk to athletes who say, yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I finished 10th, but my power was higher than the winner. Um, no, it, it doesn't matter. 
uh, <laughs> it just means you didn't use your power appropriately. And you can use that as confidence and move forward knowing, hey, maybe I have the ability to win if I play my cards right. And you can then use that confidence to execute better in the future. But that it, it doesn't it doesn't mean anything. I don't want to sound harsh, but it, it just doesn't. And so I think that um, picking that overarching goal for, hey, I want to win this race, and now I'm going to use the tactics to make that happen, it doesn't matter what those power numbers are in the end. And if you're struggling to see your numbers from training come to the racing context, you probably need to evaluate your race numbers differently. So if you're just looking at what my max five-minute power number, what my max sprint number is, and then you're looking at the race and saying, well, gee, why didn't I hit that? You're looking at it wrong because you didn't just do a 10-second sprint at the end. You did a 10-second sprint after 10 minutes of threshold or, or whatever it was. And so you probably need to look at those numbers in a different context and then look at how you're training as well to mimic those race scenarios. It's not just about putting out the highest amount of power for a certain amount of time. It's being able to fluctuate um, and put out power even when you're tired. Fantastic points, uh, Hannah. Yeah, mm -hmm. really good points. Chad, what comes to your mind? You've had such uh, so many road races and I don't remember you ever being the sort of racer that kind of was seeking to make the race fun. Rather, you were, uh, as I remember, always a very tactical racer, like looking to, to, to execute some sort of plan or outcome in the race. Yeah. What's being described here, what Vince is describing is, uh, I think, not foreign to, uh, there are a fair amount of riders who ascend through these lower ranks pretty quickly. You have to start somewhere. And when I started racing, we could uh, petition to, to start as a four. So we didn't have to do five. And these days, I'm pretty sure you have to do five. You have to have so many race stars before you can even move on to four. So you Ten have races to, as a five before you can go up yep. to a four. And yeah, it's exactly. really 10 points. And so it's like, uh, and you get a point for starting a race. Hmm. And then you also get a point in some cases, you can get a point if you do clinics uh, where they, um, and then some can, it'll be a USAC sponsored thing where they will follow a specific criteria in order to allow them to give you a race start credit. Mm -hmm. However, in some, I've heard from some athletes, they've mentioned that even if they have those clinics in their local area, that their USAC officials still force them to do five races before they upgrade. And so there is, it is, it does seem, or sorry, the 10 races before they upgrade. So it does seem like Chad, like that 10 race rule in most cases, it's probably safe to assume that's just the price you got to pay in terms yeah. of to, to move ahead. And it's fine, but I think it might be one of the things that leads some riders to believing they're a little bit, maybe, maybe they're as good as they think they are, but it can give you a bit of a big head. It, it can make you think I'm just underestimate your competitors at your own peril. I mean, there, there are going to be other riders out there who are doing the same thing, who have the, who have the physiological leanings, who have done the training, who are maybe even smart tactically. Um, they, and they have to start here too. They're going to be in, in, in whatever field you line up in, especially cat three races. And, and I'm kind of jumping ahead here, but one of the, one of my views on this is that a cat three race or, or actually this is a four or five race that we're talking about. Yeah. yeah cat four or five four race five. should never come to a, a bunch sprint. I think too much should happen. There, there are too many divergent ability levels for it to, to finish in mass. So I, I, if it, 
if that does happen, I think there were so many wasted opportunities over the course of that race that that you just got it wrong. It shouldn't it shouldn't ever go to a full bunch sprint. At some point, someone within there should do the work to to string it out to force moves, to tactical responses, etc. Um, and then again, this this whole big head thing that I'm talking about is mm. it, it can lead some riders to to do far more work than they ought to be doing, to ride less tactically or strategically than they sh- should because they think, oh, I've got this. I'm stronger than everyone out here. Again, underestimate your, your competitors and really you're overestimating yourself relative to your competitors. So you, you have to play it smart even if you are in fact the strongest rider out there. Strongest rider on the day, whatever that may be, there are still there's, there's still too many other things to concern yourself with. So you know the numbers that you can do inside, you know the numbers that you should be able to do outside. But as Hannah smartly mentioned, you you have to do all the things right in order to be able to employ whatever you think you've got locked and loaded, still still ready and waiting. Yeah. And when I look at this, I'm looking at your fitness level. You know, seventy kilograms and three hundred and four point five watt per kg. Yeah. There are people winning cat two races with a lower watt KG than you. Yep. And that's really important to remember. Like it's, um, I know that that chart, there's like that famous chart, right. That assimilates your watt KG to your fitness level. A cat one is within here and here. And, uh, the more experience I get in racing, the more I see that proven incorrect. And, and even if those are just averages, it doesn't say anything about the way a, a rider is going to race. Yeah. It's a very, very vague indication of an athlete's ability to execute. Um, you know, it's so in, in my, in my mind, there's two different ways to approach a race. It's either a race where you're looking to learn something through experimentation and winning is not the goal, whether that's learn something about your fitness or learn something about a tactic that you can execute. And then there's racing to win and they are approached very differently and they both have their different like reasons to go, or I guess uh, for reasons to be implemented. Chad's mentioned this before, but when you're in cat four and five, you should really be trying to understand how a race unfolds. What happens in a pack when somebody goes up the road, when it's a single rider versus a whole group, where do separations happen? Try to like figure out all of this sort of stuff. What typically happens in a sprint or a, like with two laps to go? What does the field do and how do they respond to attacks differently than how they responded five minutes prior? What happens at the beginning of the race? Like these are the sort of things that you should really be trying to soak up like a sponge because then when you get later on, uh, into the racing, it's going to be hard to even understand why you're losing races. You won't understand it. It's just, it's rolling away from you and, you, and you're gone, you know? And it's just, it's learned through observation as, you, as you're talking about right now, but also learn through doing. I mean, this is these, these 10, five races, this, you know, 10 plus, however many races it takes you to advance from four to three are your opportunity to throw absolutely everything at the wall and see what sticks, see what works for you, see what works relative to your competitors. See, I mean, don't don't just sit back and wait for the sprint. It, it's got to be more proactive than that if you really want to learn everything you can from what could be a potentially hugely valuable set of learning experiences. And again, we, I, I back all the time on expectations and how they can be damning. And I think this is another one of those instances where he's rolled into there. Vince has rolled into this and he says, I, I understand that my best chance to win is to sit in and wait for the sprint. Well, no, it, that might be a chance, but it's there's no best chance. In fact, best chances don't really take shape until you move way up the ladder. 
in terms of knowing your competition really well, knowing the courses really well, knowing the conditions on those courses on particular days against particular competition and never get super specific because even in those situations, it can still go 10 different ways. But in the case of a four or five race, it can go a hundred different ways. There's, there's no best way to win that race. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well said. Hannah, you, what thoughts do you have on this before I keep going? <laughs> Yeah, well, this person also said that they attacked in a two-man break with a lap and a half to go and then got caught with one lap to go. And so that's great. You tried something. And so Mm -hmm. now I would look back on that race and I would analyze what could have been done differently. You got caught with one lap to go. Should you have gone one lap later? Did you commit enough to the break? Did the person you were with help you out in the break? Did the pack immediately organize themselves? And is that why they caught you? Look at what happened in this scenario, learn from it, and then tweak it slightly to execute differently next time. I think the, the that's a great point, Hannah. And is this not maybe the most common circumstance that we, you see from really strong athletes, which if you're listening to this podcast and you're using trainer road, chances are you're strong. If you're not, you should go to trainer road and sign up. <laughs> so you're, and you're showing up and you're in these new race scenarios and you attack somewhere around one lap to go. And when you attack with one lap to go, you're almost always going to get caught unless you have the, the fortune of, of course you've worked hard to be fit, but then the fortune of a field that just makes a mistake that doesn't want to chase you down for one reason or another, but you're almost one lap to go. It's logical. Everyone thinks to attack then. So that's the wrong time to attack. Like you have to attack when it's most uncomfortable and inconvenient for you and for the field. And I promise you at one lap to go, everyone's ready. So like anywhere around one lap to go, it's not likely going to happen. Yeah, enjoy that luxury in the four fives because cat three even, but certainly cat one, two, you're not going to be able to attack in the final lap. If you haven't already made your move, that final lap is going to be all about hanging on and seeking position. There, no attacks yes. happen when the pace is as high as it's going to be in that final lap. Yes. So I, I think that like stepping back, there's good reasons like Hannah covered a couple of weeks ago when Hannah, you were talking about your racism in Puerto Rico and everything that you're doing in the beginning of the season. You aren't going to win. You're going to test things and to figure things out about yourself. And this is a great thing to do all of that out of the way. There are times when you want to race to win. And I would recommend that you really focus on this once you get out of cat five, right? That's when you're going to want to start to focus in uh, focusing in on, okay, so how do I actually win a race? I might know things that have worked for me in the past, but how can I actually win a race? And this is where I want to focus some of our time here. Because I bet there's a lot of athletes listening to this that maybe haven't won a race or they're, they've been close to winning a race and they can't figure out, they like can't, you know, crack the, the code to figure out what to do to actually win the race. Probably the best way to start this is to talk, uh, talk about, let's, let's stick for now to the context of road racing. And then let's also, and likely, you know, criterium or road, something like this, but then also let's stick to this context of an athlete in like these lower categories and like category four or maybe even category three, somewhere around there. What are the mistakes that we most commonly see an athlete do when they think that they've got the winning combination, but it rarely ends up working out. The one that we just identified is attacking somewhere around one lap to go. Everyone's expecting it. It's probably not going to work out, right? What other things have you seen athletes do in a race that they think that it's a winning strategy, but it doesn't end up working out. I think testing the field, 
I feel like when someone thinks that they're really strong within the context of a group, they constantly want to test the legs of other people in the field through mini attacks, through bringing back breaks, through setting up breakaways and then not caring if it comes back. All of those things are burning your own matches. And in the context of someone who thinks they're strongest, they think that they're just whittling down the field. But you're actually just whittling down yourself. <laughs> yeah, it's the, a great way to put this. Winners let other people test the, the field and then mm. losers are the ones that test the field themselves, right? So let other people do that work for you. Chances are, like, look, like with the amount of people on the line, there's a very likely somebody else with that same idea. Let them do that, right? And then you can be the wise one that sits back. I think I don't know if Vince has made this mistake, but it sounds like he may have made this mistake in this instance is throwing the towel in a little too early. So he goes on that that late late race break with another rider and it looks like they're going to be caught. You know, when when do you call off the hunt in that case? Because if it's if it's the last lap, you don't call off the hunt. You you completely empty the tank, give it everything you got because that's your last chance. You're probably not going to settle back in and have another chance, not with time dwindling. So learn to to recognize that just because it looks like it's over, it might not actually be over. And and if he had any capability of countering, so, you know, he sees we're going to be caught, sits on the wheel of whatever rider he's away with, and then counters that and gives it that last ditch effort, having, you know, just a bit of rest prior to it. That's one way to go. If the brake's bigger, same thing, counter it, or simply just, just dig in, rally the troops, so to speak. You know, you know, it's coming back. It looks like they're going to catch us. Come on, you guys, we've got this. Hang in there. Whatever it may be, but but don't be so quick to 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 quit. Yes, um, and this is uh, Chad. A good point that you had there on breaking away in the end. You're on like a last lap move. If you can reattach and then come over the top of them again, that's an indication to me that you've probably didn't put enough into that move. Like mm. it's it's amazing how even a gap of you know three seconds in a race on the last lap. It, it's, it, it's always really difficult to close that final distance. And you might have a field or even two or three riders coming up to you, trying to close you down and they might get very close to you, but because you are not letting off, all you need is a split second of hesitation from those people behind you. And it's going to then take your three second gap and grow it to five. And then that becomes visually discouraging to people. And it might just make it so that you end up sticking it. Everybody else wants everybody else to pull you back in. And if you show any sign of weakness that you won't get pulled in, then they quit worrying about that. Right. And so, so you have to, if you're in a late race move and I mean late, like a lap to go and you are in that scenario, maybe the field slowed down and the timing was right and you had to go for it. Then you go all in. And if you get last, you know that you went all in. It's better than thinking at any point man, maybe I should hold up so then I can reattach and come over the top of them. Just go in. You know, if this is like a, a goal event and you're talking an A race and it's like a big, heavy consequence thing, then maybe some things change. But even then, I'd still advocate for that sort of strategy. You just have to go all in all the way with those sort of breaks. Um, and that's kind of one thing, like a principle that I see applied by any successful like racer. When they're in a break, it is absolutely all in. When there's any sort of bold move off the front, whether they're alone or not, it is all in and it's not one where they're holding anything back. Uh, otherwise, if you're going to approach one with hesitation, you shouldn't even make the move, right? Like you should just be sitting in kind of like what Hannah said, being efficient instead of wasting your, your energy. 
any other, um, things that you see athletes do that like winners or and when they, I guess I should say when they do it wrong or things that they do, right. This is less of a strategy, but I do see it a lot. And I think can be beneficial to identify is when you're sitting in the group, you're sitting in the group, you're not panicking. Um, and mm. I see this a lot with people who are newer to racing or maybe new to a, a new category. So you're excited. You can see someone whose eyes are darting around who are thinking, oh, I should be on that wheel. Oh, I should be on that wheel. Cover, oh, I should cover, be further cover. up. Oh, I should be further back. Oh, I'm not in the draft enough. And they're just constantly trying to move. And you can tell that their heart rate is elevated. And I think even, even if you're not moving around, sometimes I've I've been guilty of this. You're excited. You're in a group and you're thinking, here we go, here we go, here we go, here we go. You're super excited. And if you actually pause and look down, you're like doing recovery watts. And so it's really important when you're in that group to take a moment to acknowledge, hey, this effort is easy. So let's make sure that it feels easy, that I'm calming my system and I'm not just ripping through calories because of my emotions. Yeah, and being being one of the stronger riders or perhaps even the strongest rider on the day can increase your tendency to try to cover everything too. You don't want anything to get away that doesn't include you because you know you're capable and, and maybe that's the move and maybe that's the move and maybe that's the move. So there's there's really no restraint because you feel like you can cover anything and you're you're the rider on the day. So and that can lead you to hemorrhaging a ton of energy that actually makes a difference. This is some of the power that you can produce when you're training that isn't available when you're racing because you're not using it wisely. Mm -hmm. That's a great, great point. I, I also see winners rarely be the ones that have a specific rider that they're focusing on and they're just going to be reactive to that rider. Mm. In most cases that ends up setting up for like a defensive strategy where you aren't the one that makes it happen. What I see from winners is they typically have some sort of principle that they are following that indicates when they are going to go and go all in on an effort. And that's what they're putting their eggs into that basket. Uh, we've mentioned this before on the podcast, but typically also, I think it's probably fair to say winners in most cases aren't the ones that attack from the gun. Um, <laughs> they're typically the ones that are going to attack later on. Depends if the circumstances are right, you know, you can give it a shot, whatever, but in most cases, would beg to differ. let's say that again. Sorry. Elisa Balsamo would beg to differ. I mean, she won a world title. <laughs> Attacking from yes. the front at the, at the gun. Yeah. Uh, there are exceptional athletes like her, <laughs> you know, um, in most cases, you know, we're talking in generalities, I guess a race will start out and it will start out very strong, um, or very easy. One of the two will be very polarized, but then typically the first third of the race, you'll see some activity. The second third of the race, it will start to develop a lull, particularly, particularly toward the end of that second third. And then in the final third, it will just continually ramp up in most cases. <clears throat> and that's kind of what you'll see in terms of average speed. That's what you'll see in terms of intensity or tactics that happen in a race. And in most cases, when you see a break that's big enough to go out on its own or do anything like that, it always seems to happen in that second third of the race. And that's when people can get a break because the field says, we'll have enough time to reel them in. We don't care. And then in addition to that, there's this combination of, well, we're getting closer to the end than the beginning. So then that causes people to make have indecision and make bad decisions as well. And that's typically where you see a lot of athletes or teams. They'll put a lot of effort into those sort of moves at that time period in the race. When they get into the final third, they fully commit to the sprint finish. In most cases, that's what you see. Now, 
it's tricky because what we do is we watch pro racing and we, when we watch pro racing, we fixate on these extraordinary performances, like what we saw over the weekend at Milan San Remo and all these races in reality, most of our races don't unfold like that. Uh, we don't have world-class talent at the sort of depth that you would expect, uh, perhaps if you're going into a race and you also don't have the dynamic courses and everything else that's going to be going into that. So instead, I think it's better to just adhere to principles rather than trying to emulate what you see and having those situations where you're avoiding being nervous, you're committed to a plan, you the you're not going to attack too late. You're going to go all in, uh, when you actually do something, all of these things are going to help you substantially at increasing the amount of races that you win. Uh, it's really in Vince's case, Vince has the fitness, um, you may or may not have the fitness, but if you're executing a good plan, your likelihood to go up or to win goes up substantially. If you're executing a poor plan, it almost doesn't matter what your fitness is. In most cases, it's going to work against you and it's going to be really, really tough to win. Yeah, and, so, and you say you, you want it to be fun, just make it fun. You have the, you have the fitness to do so and, and maybe set, kind of, kind of let yourself off the pursuing victory hook too. Mm-hmm. Be, be okay with taking chances that may not pan out. And I say that for a couple of reasons. One is you always learn more from your mistakes than you do from, from, from your victories. So in this case, and then secondly, you just, you'd be surprised how often a race comes back together, how many things you can get wrong and still end up faring well. The, 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 the flyer that you take early in the race gets brought back. Well, your race is far from over. There's a hundred more things you can do. The break that got brought back in the final lap. Well, still may not be over. You still may have some punch. You still may be able to find that right wheel when it comes zinging, zinging around you. So just don't be afraid to really try anything, make a hundred mistakes and, and just learn from it, learn from it, learn from it. I think another mistake that I see a lot is people not allowing the course to dictate their strategy. Um, I see it a lot in that someone will employ a strategy that works really well in a certain course and they'll win. And so then they'll think this is Mm. the strategy that works Mm. for me. I always attack with one lap to go with three minutes to go. I'm a last corner sprinter, but everything, whether it's uphill, whether it's downhill, headwind, tailwind, distance to the finish, is there a chicane, all of these things should and will influence how the race turns out. And so if you're trying to race to win, you need to take those things into account. Yeah, absolutely. So Vince, in this case right now, test things out, experiment, like Chad was saying in these lower categories, it's the time to do that. So then you can gain information about how you race and how others race and then stick to those principles of not being the ones that are overeager, uh, be confident and be committed to what you're going to do. Um, let other people do the work instead of you. Uh, that'll all help. So, and people will yell at you, by the way, get ready for that. People will yell at you and be very angry that you're not doing that. You're not giving them a magic carpet ride all the way to the finish line. Um, and that should be expected. Uh, their anger shouldn't affect how you ride. Uh, instead just, you know, go in with your plan and execute your plan. Um, and that'll really help out. All right. Uh, before we go any further, I want to give a quick update on Cape Epic. So it's Cape Epic week. I'm actually, uh, as you can see, if you're on YouTube, I'm wearing my Cape Epic shirt right now. Uh, the race that measures all, it says. Quite proud of that shirt. Um, uh, it's an exciting week. It's been really fun racing to watch. And we did a special episode with our with three of our employees who are racing Cape Epic right now in the pro field. Uh, it's pretty great. I want to update you on them and let you know how they went. 
If you haven't listened to that episode, it's episode 408. You can go and listen to that one. It's a relatively short episode where we learned about their preparation. So Tiffany and Haley, they're racing for the Valley Electrical team uh, by presented by Titan Racing. I want to make sure I give their teams credit because this is a big lift for it's a very expensive race to do. And these teams are fronting that cost for them. And that's just super cool. So um and that team is actually ran by Rousseau, one of our employees, which is awesome. Uh, so it's really cool. So they've got Tiffany and Haley, and they're in sixth in the women's field, in the women's pro field, just crushing it, which is great. They're fourth in the African jersey competition. So a lot of really strong South African women in the pro field this year. It's great to see. And then Keegan Bontekonig and Arnaud Dutois, they are the insect science uh, mountain bike team. And they are, uh, I think they're riding Scott bikes. And they are at 14th in the men's division in pro, which is incredible. Such a stacked field. They're third in the African Jersey competition. And Rousseau and HB Kruger, they're the ones that are riding as the B team for their other, uh, the other companionship from Valley Electrical. And Rousseau and HB are holding strong in 33rd, which right now, which is awesome. So they're at stage today was stage three. So the fourth day in stage three. Tomorrow they have that, like, it's like a time trial, but it's basically a two, two and a half hour XEO style effort on, I think like all single track. So that will be, and then after this, every day is brutally hard. Like the climb to distance ratio, uh, ratios are the hardest that they'll encounter yet in the race. And there's some of the longer stages and they are right up there with the highest amount of climbing as well. So that, that race, like it's looks really brutal the next few stages. Um, so yeah, anyways, it's going to be very exciting to see. Hopefully you're watching Cape Epic. It's a super, they have a fantastic coverage. You can go onto the YouTube channel and they have live coverage that covers the entire race, but then they also have like uh, extended highlights and highlights. Go check it out. It's pretty cool. And then also if, uh, you can go and find, um, those athletes on Instagram, we posted their links and everything else, but we're also reposting their stuff on our trainer road Instagram. So go find us on Instagram. Then you can follow along with how our trainer road athletes are doing there. Exciting. Uh, okay. This next one is from Jonathan and I promise you it's not for me. Uh, says what, if any running power does coach Jonathan use for his triathlon training, given how relatively new running power is and the large amount of data trainer road has on runners. Now the podcast might have some insights to share on whether running power is worth investing in at this point. Um, so I don't have any like big insights in terms of whether it's investing in at this point, based on our data set that we have, we have a lot of running data, like we've mentioned before. Um, that said running power is really rare, uh, compared to cycling power. When you look at the data, like not a lot of people have running power meters or have had running power meters. It's changed now because, um, stride has really been the incumbent for a long time. It's a foot pod and it uses motion, uh, to be able to extrapolate and estimate your power output. And, uh, that's really been like the main one for a long time for a while. They had like, I don't know if you guys remember, but Adidas and I think even Nike or Puma, they actually invested in companies that were trying to put power meters into insoles and then also into the sole of the shoe. But I think that one's really complicated because your foot shifts around and it changed the power reading substantially. And then in addition to that, as the shoe wore out, there was no way for them to uh, somehow align that into uh, to be able to have accurate ratings and get some sort of like recalibration like you would be able to uh, with cycling. So it's complicated. Uh, now, just recently, this has been a huge change is that now Garmin watches and Koros has done this and Polar does this as well. 
But so many people have Garmin watches that this has really exploded the number of running power meters. I say in quotes here, but um, they estimate your power just by the motion of your wrist. And if you have a foot pod, I think that it helps increase that accuracy a bit. Um, if you have like a standard foot pod. Uh, but anyways, that's kind of like the power sources that you have your wrist is your watch is estimating it based off your wrist effectively, or, uh, your stride foot pod is measuring it. So because of that, there hasn't been, and that change to Garmin watches is recent. There hasn't been a lot out there. So not a lot of data on it. Uh, that said, Chad, um, I don't know if you have any insight on this, but I have, I haven't found it particularly useful, particularly when I'm running in post, it can be somewhat informative, but even then there's some big caveats. In general, the more I read on this, the more it becomes clear that this is a pretty tough nut to crack has been, and seems like it still is. Uh, I, I looked at basically dating back to 2018, cause there's just not a lot of literature prior to that. I'm not even sure when these devices first surfaced, but it had to be pretty close to back then. Um, what I'm going to offer is kind of a survey of the last, uh, geez, what would that be? Three, three and a half years, four years, and just little learnings taken from a small handful of studies. And I'm going to remain brand agnostic because the research doesn't really seem to favor any one device, any one manufacturer or any of the others. So, uh, and, and, and I'll actually touch specifically on that point. But uh, a couple studies from 2018, the first one just demonstrated that estimating the power-velocity relationship, and we're almost always, maybe always, talking about submaximal paces, so not all out, not sprinting, require, or requires surprisingly little data. They used a two-point method, which they compared to a four-point method. And, and basically, the, the four-point method went from 10 kilometers per hour up to 17 kilometers per hour. That's roughly six miles per hour up to about 10 and a half miles per hour. And then they had a six minute pace. If you're thinking paces, roughly yeah, 10 yes, minute mile. Very, exactly. Yeah. Mile. And then, and then they did, so the four point they did, uh, they used those same boundaries, but then they did a couple other tests within it. So they had four points of data to use. The other one just used the boundaries. So, so the 10 and the 17 or the, the six MPH and the 10 MPH and found that it was just as effective as the multi-point method. So the point here is that the estimation of the power necessary at these submaximal velocities doesn't have to be overly fatiguing. And it doesn't have to be overly elaborate, though, you know, I mentioned this, but it's likely handled by your device software or firmware anywhere. You're going to do the run. You're going to do whatever test is prescribed. They're going to glean the data points and tell you the, the pertinent information. And then a second study from 2018 pointed out how the, the metabolic costs differed over different terrains. And in this case, the terrains weren't that different. It was an indoor treadmill versus an outdoor track. So both pretty contained, consistent environment. But they, they, they found that these differences weren't not accurately reflected in the run power. And, and again, maybe this is a limitation of five years ago. Maybe we've come some distance since then. But this is, I think, a little bit similar to estimating power when you're seated versus standing. And, 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 and the, the same idea, I mean, the power is the same. The, the power to the, to the cranks, to the tires, to the, the hub, wherever it's getting measured, the pedals – it's the power is the power, but the metabolic cost that it exerts, the strain that it exerts on the body may not be the same. So when, when you change the terrain or in the case of the bike, the riding position, it can and does, and, and it, and it did in this study lead to underestimates, underestimates, sorry, in metabolic costs or really your caloric expenditure, meaning that as I just stated, power measurement alone can't account for everything. And, and I'll say again, whenever possible, 
pair all of your objective metrics with something subjective, usually something just as simple as RPE, perhaps other objective metrics, that's fine, but with something else so that you can better portray the the stress that you're actually enduring. It's not just about that power number. It's not just about that TSS number. It's never about just one thing. Hmm. And additionally, in this study, the authors noted that measures of certain running dynamics, and in this case, they measured vertical oscillation, so the up and down, ground contact time, you know, basically how long you're in contact with the ground, Cadence, all these things can provide useful feedback regarding changes in running economy, which could be the only thing. I mean, even if that's all you got from power meters, running power meters, I still think it's a worthwhile investment. So so even if the power measurements are at times underestimated, some of the metrics surrounding efficiency appear to be and did appear to be in 2018 quite reliable. Come forward a couple of years to 2020. And one brand in particular exhibited a strong positive linear relationship between both uh, so power output and oxygen consumption. So they could you know, tie those two things together and power output with external mechanical power. And they measured that via force platforms, but that that power output was, again, consistently underestimated. So what wasn't, again, metrics associated with running economy. In this case, they measured ground contact time, but also leg spring stiffness. Another 2020 study simply acknowledged that there's good inter-device reliability, and they did this across 10 different running power meters. So point here, don't get too hung up on any one particular brand, at least uh, as of a few years ago. Didn't seem to make a difference. Another study from 2020, they used a scoping review, which is just another type of literature review. Um, started with, you know, 1,300 studies made the initial criteria, whittled it down to 19. But 19 studies were included, and they demonstrated broadly that running power meters need further research before any definitive conclusions are drawn regarding validity and reliability. So as recent as just a couple years ago, jury still seemed to be deliberating. And my takeaway here is that, you know, do your analysis, form your conclusions, adjust your training, whatever you're going to do, just knowing that, that running power meters are likely useful, but they still have room for impu- improvement, which is, I'm sure, well, I, I can't say I'm sure, but I, I know they're at least working on it. And then uh, last couple of studies from 2021, uh, one particular brand of running power meter demonstrated a really strong relationship between metabolic rate and estimated running power. So it seems like they're, they're starting to improve that, but they did note that differences in running style may affect how close that estimate is, which to me seems to still be about differences in running economy. But my, my takeaway here is that it looks as though progress is indeed being made, most definitely being pursued. And then final study, again, from 2021, actually put some hard numbers on on some of these key metrics. And definitely take this with a grain of salt because these are really specific numbers. But first off, an increase of one meter per second translated to an increase of 0.944 watts per kilogram. And then secondly, uh, as aerobic power, again, submaximal speeds, as aerobic power increases by one watt per kilogram, running power increases by 0.218 watts per kilogram. So, you know, if you jotted all that down, you've been provided with some figures to play with for, for those looking to predict power-based changes in velocity and, and, and vice versa. But overall, with this study, their take was that for level treadmill running, at least, running power meters that, that estimate power indeed closely reflect force-based measurements, making them potentially valuable performance feedback devices. But again, this was strictly limited to a treadmill. And I question how precise those ones were, just like you mentioned mm-hmm. before, just due to difference in running forum mm-hmm. and the context, I feel like is important. There's Can so I- many things that have to factor into this that I, I just, like I said, tough nut to crack. I, I don't know 
with, with simple devices especially, maybe with a conglomeration of something on your wrist, something on your feet, both feet, uh, I, don't, I don't know how they're going to do it. Yeah. Hannah, do you ever use a power meter for running in your try days? I don't know if you, you did or if you have any experience with this. I did not. Um, I feel like it was just starting to kind of surface and you know, I think it's getting better and I do think that there's a place for it. And I think ultimately, you know, we're probably going to come up with something pretty, pretty great because I believe in technology. But I think that when you're talking about running power, it's just it's not the same as cycling power. Mm. Um, cycling power is the gold standard because it's the one thing that we can keep as objective data on the bike. But in running, there's always exceptions to the rule. But in running, most people out there are going for a very specific time. A Boston qualifying time is a Boston qualifying time. And so you need to run at that pace. And I think for that reason, pace in running is really a valuable training metric versus pace in cycling. Not so much, especially when it comes to something like mountain biking, where there's so many external variables that you have to keep to the power numbers rather than the pace. Yeah. Great points. Mm -hmm. Uh, having used and, and one other obviously very popular device that I forgot to mention is the Apple watch also estimates power. Um, and if you have it like, so that if you pair Strava with trainer road or anything like that, all of your Apple watch activities that are recording power, they will then get passed through Strava and the power will show up in your trainer road files. Um, so, uh, I have used stride power meters. I've used Apple watch. I've used my and Garmin watch as well, uh, for power. And what I find is that the Apple watch and Garmin watch are quite similar in terms of power. And the stride is very different. Uh, the stride is much lower than those other two, um, by, a, like, you know, if I do a 300, if I finish a run and, you know, weighing 150 pounds, and doing something like seven minutes uh, on, and holding seven minute mile pace. That's like four minutes, something per kilometer. I'm not, not sure exactly, but seven minute mile pace. If I hold that and I'm holding it for the duration of the run, it might say on my stride that I average somewhere around like 250 Watts. Whereas if I look at my Apple watch or Garmin watch, it's going to say that I average somewhere maybe around 300 to 320 Watts. So substantial difference, like it's very big. And if you're looking at that in terms of caloric burn and everything else, and you're trying to plan out your nutrition, which one do you pick? It's kind of challenging. So now the, the biggest barrier for me though is, so the other day I was running with my daughter in her stroller. Um, we have like a run stroller and it was a brutal, first of all, that's heavy and you have to push that when you run. Right. And then in addition to that brutal headwind for a good portion of that run, and going up a steep hill back to our house. And the power was not different than when I had a tailwind and I was going downhill or when I was running by myself. And my running technique was totally different because when you're pushing a stroller, even though it rolls quite easily, it's different. Didn't pick up. I uh, didn't, you know, it, if I look at ground contact time, vertical oscillation, all of that was different, but my power wasn't meaningfully different. And that's something that when you get into different surfaces too, and you're running on trail or anything else, it's way harder when you're having to deal with it, a variable surface, one that doesn't have perfect traction. And that's just something that I haven't found to be consistently picked up. Even shoes I've tested with the same power meter on a treadmill. And I've tested out like a very basic, like a, a run, like a basic running shoe, like a Nike Pegasus, and then going all the way up to like through recovery shoes into super shoes. 
and they don't show any significant difference for the same pace. And you would think that these, because these shoes are proven to show like a change in like when you actually measure gas exchange, they show different substrate utilization at different intensities. And this is not just, you know, one study and this isn't anything done by any of the companies. This is third-party research and it's very common and across the board. So you should see some difference in power output at a given pace with that. I haven't seen it yet. All of that said, I do notice that roughly around a certain pace, I tend to have a power that I can stick to. So if I was going to use that for pacing and for some reason that was more helpful than just going by pace, it could be great. I really wish it worked better on hills and with headwinds, and I'm not really sure how to measure that effectively, uh, particularly the headwind side of things. Uh, I know that the devices say they do it, but in practicality, in my experience, I haven't found it. Because it'd be great if they could do that because then it can make pacing on a hilly course much easier. But mm-hmm. that's when you really want it because that's where the when exactly. the pace isn't isn't yes. helping you. Yeah. Yeah. So uh we'll talk more about triathlon training next week because next week I'm doing Ironman Oceanside 70.3. So uh, we'll get to talk about uh how I'm going into that race and what the goal is and and everything else. So that'll be good. But I don't want to make all of our cyclists. Well, now all the cyclists aren't going to listen next week. So I apologize for that, but I promise it won't be too long. So, uh, David's question is a great one and applies to all of us. Is there any, or anything detrimental to starting your recovery shake before the end of the ride? If I'm commuting to work and I have two bottle cages, if I'm doing a two to three hour workout, I'd like to drink pure carbs for the first 90 minutes, which is when the intervals would be done, then move to a recovery drink when that's done, usually doing zone two for the rest of the ride. So I guess the core part of the question, is there anything detrimental to starting the recovery shake before the end of the ride? Hannah, um, I don't know if you do this, uh, like uh, in, do you carry like the recovery nutrition with you or have you done this where you take it in or what's your approach to this? No, I don't carry it with me. Um, but I do drink something right immediately when I get in the door. And I think, you know, just just for me, just starting by speaking from experience, because I know Chad's going to go in um, to some other details, but, um, you know, experience wise, if I drink something right when I get in the door, it sets me up so much better for the rest of the day. Um, and the reason for that is I feel like if I walk in the door and I delay it, let's say I go shower, I rest for a bit, then all of a sudden the hunger hits you. And at least for me, it's almost like a panic. It's when the kitchen raid happens. It's, oh my gosh, I have to eat something right now and whatever I can get my hands on. And so then I'll raid the kitchen, then I won't be hungry, then I won't eat the quality stuff, and then my nutrition for the whole day has fallen apart. But if when I get back from my ride, whether I want it or not, I drink a recovery drink right away, it gives me sort of this buffer period in which now I can rest. I've gotten some nutrition. Now I'm calm internally. Um, and I can then prepare the necessary food that I need to, in order to recover properly. Yeah. Uh, and, and Chad, it's probably not like, uh, even mechanically like effective to start taking it in. Like it's not going to be advantageous to take it in while you're still doing the ride. Right. No, I think if we want to get super simple about this, and, and the, the shallow dive on this is all Jonathan's. I just have a couple minor points to add. Uh, and, and really simply and very straightforward, as long as you're not using it, replenishment can happen wherever. So if it's toward the end of the ride and you basically turned it off and you're barely working anymore and it's not – there isn't a muscular need for it, it it'll, it's going to start to restock the, the 
partially or very depleted stores. So, and, and that just comes down to a matter of intensity. So once you've dialed the intensity down, you know, you're about to be done. Cause I mean, even at low intensity, if you're going to be on the bike for another two or three hours, well, it's not recovery nutrition. It's going to be on the bike, on the fly work nutrition. Uh, but as, as long as you're wrapping up the ride, you've basically shut the engines way, 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 way down. Then you can start that replenishment process really anytime you want. I, I think it comes down to really two concerns at that point. One is gut tolerance. I know if I've just done hard work or a long ride, I may not be particularly hungry and I don't, I can't promise I'd hold it down if I started to to dive into something while I'm still on the bike. And in my case, I have to come up a few hills. So absolutely not. And then uh, <laughs> portability. I mean, that, that's a big one. I mean, how many people are going to want to pack an extra drink, some way to keep it cold because the warm recovery nutrition is <laughs> not super desirable. <laughs> Um, so I think it's just realistically, it's not practical for people to to sport their their recovery nutrition on rides. Uh, in the case of riding to work, or you know, it, there are situations where it works out. Clearly, David has one of those. Yeah, and if you're listening to this now, you're probably yelling like, "But what about the anabolic window or the recovery window?" As it's yeah. as it's frequently uh, referenced, and the science doesn't back up the research that exists right now. It doesn't back up that there's any sort of crucial time period where if you don't take in protein. Uh, and that like carb mix of four to one. And if you don't take that in within a certain amount of time that you've done yourself a disservice instead, what the research has shown that they've done a handful of studies. So there's one called the effective protein timing on muscle strength and hypertrophy, a meta-analysis from Schoenfeld in 2013. Sure. And being a meta-analysis, they looked at a ton of different studies and what they found is that athlete in general, uh, when they had populations that had uh, protein that was given to them throughout the rest of the day versus protein that was given to them post-workout immediately thereafter, there wasn't any meaningful difference to that. In other words, the body was able to repair itself, rebuild, and do everything else that it needed to if it got the protein instantly or throughout the day. So you don't have to put pressure on yourself to think that like, if I don't take this in, my muscles aren't going to rebuild themselves. There's another study by Bronco in 2017 where they did protein timing has no effect on lean mass, strength, and functional capacity gains induced by resistance exercise in postmenopausal women. And this brings up like a common thing where I've heard it even um, stated that like, you know, women have a greater need for this, but the research has been done on men and women, both populations, and there doesn't seem to be any meaningful difference in terms of that. However, that's the protein side of things. If we look at the carbohydrate side of things, that's where things are, you know, it's a bit different it, uh, by principle carbohydrate replenishment is important. You've used likely if you're doing any sort of training that isn't just very easy, you've used a significant amount of carbohydrate to be able to drive that performance. And as a result, your stores have been reduced compared to what they were prior to that. Uh, in the context of all of us being normal people where we have, we don't just get to pedal a bike and then sit there for the rest of the day until we pedal the bike again the next day. You have other things that call your attention. And if you just carry on without re-nourishing yourself, you will uh, feel that strain and it will make it much more difficult to then perform as you would expect, even in non-training contexts, you know, whether it's trying to record a podcast or do anything else like that. Um, it's actually why I, on um, typically whenever we record, I don't do a hard, hard workout before that morning, because even though I try to replenish, I find myself being a little mm -hmm. dumb. So, uh, it makes it better when, I can make sure that I don't have that. So anyways, the carbohydrate side, I think that once again, don't put pressure on yourself to think that there is some sort of anabolic window, that 15 minute window or 30 minute window that's commonly referenced. 
Instead, think in terms of principles like Hannah said. I thought it was a great example of if you have a routine that makes sure that you're nourishing yourself right after you've done something like that, it makes it much easier to then make the sort of choices that support your nourishment and health and productivity later on. And if you don't have that in place, you're just leaving a lot up to chance and it makes it really difficult. Uh, for me personally, and I'm much, I know this is Hannah's approach and I don't know about you, Chad, but I instantly, when I'm done riding, I go in and I eat and that's what I do. And that's just part of my process and it doesn't change. I wish I could take in recovery shakes, but it's always tricky finding protein that doesn't mess up my gut, um, protein powder. So I typically just try to eat a nutritious meal and, uh, or something, or if it's, you know, the timing's not right, something small that I find that is really nourishing and, and I enjoy. Uh, and, but that's the principle I think that you should follow. So no need to put stress on yourself that your muscles are going to fall apart if you don't take in protein within uh, the window right after your workout. And no need to also put pressure on yourself that if you can't take it in, that everything is lost. Just try to get in the nutrition as you can throughout the day. I think that's the the general principle to follow. Um, any more thoughts on that one? Uh, just, just to further what you said, I mean, there is a we we are more sensitive to nutrient intake at you know fresh fresh off a of workout there is science to support that yes that is true but what impact that has on our ability to replenish these depleted stores is is not we kind of lose the plot when we start looking at it as this is the best time for me to do it. So this must be the only time for me to do it. Absolutely not. If if you're doing two a days, if you're doing a second workout, then replenishing quickly, getting it done quickly and, and max or taking advantage of that sensitivity is probably a good idea. In fact, it's been shown to be a good idea. But in most cases, if we're talking about doing a workout and then doing another one 24 hours later, when you get your nutrition is, isn't not that big a deal that that anabolic window is, is more of a, a garage door. It's, it's massive. Yeah. Well stated, Chad, good visualization. <laughs> uh, okay, let's go. And actually we'll have some videos coming out on this very thing. And also we've had, uh, on master's nutrition, we had a recent podcast, a science of getting faster podcast. Check that out. You can also check it out on our YouTube channel, S search trainer road on YouTube and you'll find it there where we talked to researchers and we asked you for questions on our Instagram channel. And then we asked those questions to the researchers. It was pretty cool. We have another one coming up on vegan diets and endurance athletes speaking to researchers that have done different experiments on that very thing. So that's a great one too. Uh, so stay tuned to that and check out everything we have going. Rennie, uh, I'm a beginner and would like to get into cycling. It's been years since I have been active from a cardio perspective what are some good ways to increase my cardiovascular strength to ramp things up? So Chad, just like, uh, getting back into training after no training, is there anything that you would recommend in terms of ramping things back up? Or how would you recommend they start off? But uh, I'm going to be super simple in general with this one. Not going to, not going to hit the books or hit the research just to build a, or basically use my own personal experience because I've worked with a lot of people who, you know, come to me with zero fitness and, and need to build from there. People who have been fit, but have gotten way far from that fitness. Um, that that's as a personal trainer, as a cycling coach, these are people you will encounter. And I first would like to dispel the notion that fitness is necessary to pursue fitness. I had so many people say, well, I want to do your bike classes, you know, way back in the indoor power days, mm -hmm. but I'm not quite strong enough to do them yet. I, I want to, I want to get in shape before I come to your bike classes so that I can get in shape. And I mean, I hope they hear themselves <laughs> saying that it just doesn't make sense. 
the, you start where you start. Uh, so, so don't feel like you have to have any particular basis before you can start pursuing fitness. I and mean, obviously it goes without saying, I'll say it anyway, you should have physician sign off if you have any form of pathologies or limitations or something that does, you know, raise concerns. But for most people, most healthy people, even if you're out of shape, just start doing something. And to that end, do anything, any, anything that motivates you. I find at this point, if you if you try to get too quickly in the weeds or start to commit yourself to what can be a daunting task, if you're looking too far ahead or if you're trying to get fit quickly or make changes rapidly and you dive in headlong, it can it can derail the whole thing. You, you stick with it for as long as you stick with it. Typically, you know, a couple of weeks is is what I see, and then you've basically scared yourself off, and and that's that. So find something that's fun. Establish a, a schedule and, and maintain that schedule. It doesn't even matter what it is. It can be a, an after-dinner walk. It can be yard work. It can be something this specific, going to a gym, getting on a treadmill or, or whatever. But get the habits. Make make sure they're, they're general in nature. But once they've bedded in, that's when you start to get more challenging, more daunting, intimidating, whatever it is. Because – the, the, the fundamentals are in place. Now I, I have my habit. I know I'm doing this at this time of day. What I've been doing isn't challenging me or isn't improve, isn't yielding improvements anymore. So I'm going to grow the challenge. And before you know it, you'll, you'll be ready to tackle just about anything. Nice. Good tips. Uh, Hannah, what tips do you have? Yeah, I think, um, I really like what Chad said about the routine. I think being consistent is the most important thing. And I think one of the best ways to establish consistency at the beginning is to start smaller than you think. Whatever you mm. think you can do, cut it in half. If you think you can go on an hour-long walk, do 30 minutes. If you think you can do 30 minutes on the trainer, do 15. Um, you can always up it later. Always. And so if you feel ridiculous starting with a 10-minute walk, 15-minute ride, great. Finish with the idea of, well, that was easy. I don't know if that did anything because you're more likely to go back tomorrow. Mm -hmm. In the same way, if you, you know, usually when people make the decision, okay, I'm going to make a change, I'm going to work on my cardio, it's out of motivation, which means when they get there, they usually think, I'm going to push really hard. If you push so hard that you are so exhausted that it's scary to come back, not helpful. Start really easy where you finish and it's just like, eh, I could have done a lot more. I think that finishing with that mindset of I could do more is the absolute best place to start when you're starting out. That's really well said. And I included this question because I feel like the principles that apply to beginners also apply to even the top level professionals. It's really important for us to remember that consistency matters more than doing something big and impressive. It's also really important for us to understand how our training and our motivation work hand in hand with each other and what we're telling ourselves and, you know, the truth that we tell ourselves and what we end up buying. Right. And, uh, so all these things, great advice from Chad and Hannah experienced cyclists. We should be doing an audit of ourselves on this and saying, yeah, why am I doing this? Am I doing too much? Should I be tapering it back? So then I have more enthusiasm for training, um, very good things, I think, for all of us to, to ask. So uh, questions like this and all the others, they come through all of you submitting questions. You can do it at trainerroad.com slash podcast. 
it'd be awesome to hear from you. Uh, let's go into Rich's question. It says, I'm a 56-year-old and about three weeks into a low-volume training plan with goals of getting back into cross-country racing condition and just generally being able to keep up with my type A mountain bike friends on group rides. I like that. That's a honestly one of the uh, at some point in my life, my goal with training is just going to be to enjoy mountain biking more. And when you have more fitness on the bike, it makes all the climbs and all the tricky parts so much easier to handle. It's absolutely worthwhile goal because mountain biking might be the most fun a human can have. So, uh, yeah, good stuff, rich. Okay. Rich says training is going great, but I want to incorporate a 20 minute beginner high intensity interval training strength workout once a week to work on balance muscles and core strength. I'm on the bike three times a week, Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday with my longer ride on Saturdays. My question for all of you is where should I best place this 20 minute full body, high intensity training strength workout? It sounds short, but it can be intense. And I know it will lead to some soreness as I'm getting working or getting going with it. Thanks in advance. And I love the podcast. Keep up the great work. And then says, by the way, I'm a recent convert from a different training platform. And I thought I would really miss watching my avatar zip around those virtual worlds. I don't miss that at all. And I find the adaptive training and progression super engaging. Thanks for a great product. Good to hear. Awesome to have you rich. Uh, this is a good question. Hannah, how do you do strength? Because I feel like I don't want to make all of us feel bad, Chad, um, and all of us like average folks, but I feel like with, if you're going to do something that blows up your training, it's like a really high consequence just because it's, it's quite literally your livelihood, right? And strength training can do that. So how do you work strength training into your training? Yeah. I feel like when I first read this question, I immediately came back with a simple answer and then kept adding more and adding more and adding more because it is complicated. Mm -hmm. And this is asked so often. Um, so I'll try and keep it succinct and then we can run with whatever we feel like is, is best. But so I do strength two times a week. Um, and I always, always do it after my cycling workout. And I do that because strength I think is incredibly important, but ultimately I am doing the strength to benefit my cycling. Therefore it comes after my cycling. Um, and ideally I'll have three hours in between that cycling workout and that strength workout when possible. Um, and then also strength is not an off day, so I'll never do it as, oh, I have an off day. I'll just do strength today. Um, and ideally it's also not going to impact my really important workouts. So I personally like to have a really hard cycling workout. Then I'll take my three hours plus rest and then I'll do my strength workout. Um, and that seems to work best for me because if I do it on an easy aerobic day and then have a hard cycling work workout the next day, I might still be suffering some sort of soreness um, or something like that from that strength work. And so that's how I like to structure it. I always do full body strength. Um, that's how I structure my strength training or rather how my coach structures it. Um, I think that there is really specific, uh, strength workouts that cyclists should be doing. And that's because even though cycling is a full body exercise, we are putting out power one side at a time, um, more or less. And so I think single sided exercises are really important. And those usually also encompass balance of some sort. So I don't really think that you need to be standing on Swiss balls, but something as simple as Bulgarian split squats or single leg RDLs, um, 
that's great for working on being able to do unilateral strength with a balanced component. Uh, I lift heavy weights, usually in the four to 10 rep range. I do plyometrics. I think that's super important for mountain bikers to be able to establish those neuromuscular connections. Um, and then I also use it for injury prevention. So there's some of the obvious things like as mountain bikers, if you hit your shoulder or something on a tree, you're a lot less likely to sustain an injury if you have some strength, but also for those chronic injuries. So as cyclists, we only move in the sagittal plane um, and meaning we only go forward. And so strength is a really great opportunity to move our bodies side to side or laterally uh, in order to strengthen some of those side muscles. I think the glute med has become a big word that everyone uses now. So working on glute med strength to help uh, navigate knee pain, work on core strength, um, to navigate back pain. Um, and then finally, the last thing I'll add is in relation to the HIT, uh, high intensity interval training specific towards strength is I push myself so hard on the bike. That's the time when I am digging way deep down to get that last interval done. And you only have so many of those matches. And so while I do push myself in strength, Strength is not the place that I'm trying to dig way deep down for that last rep. Not only do I think that that's not beneficial for your body, but I think mentally it's way too much. And so I think that it's important in strength to, yes, push yourself, but you're not pushing yourself to complete and total exhaustion. Um, your body can't handle that on all levels of everything you do. You have to pick and choose. Mm. Chad, what are your thoughts on, on this approach of incorporating, we've talked a lot about strength, Hannah, fantastic recommendations on it. And, um, I don't want to say just do what Hannah does uh, because Hannah's not, you know, a normal one of us. <laughs> Hannah's a very good athlete, but at the same time, I really like the principles that you're following with how you structure your strength training, where you time it, everything else. I think it's Great advice for all of us to follow, but Chad, the whole concept of combining high intensity interval training, like strength training workouts with cycling mm -hmm. that gives me pause. Does it give you pause? Uh, it does. And I kind of want to get to that in a minute, because one of the things that you requested here in the notes is that I look at the pros and the cons of non-cycling high intensity interval training strength work. So hit strength work for cyclists. And I do want to recognize that, you know, that they're real. I mean, on the, on the pro side of thing, we've talked about central adaptation. We kind of readdress this when we talked about how the adaptations that take place on the heart, the, the lungs, the vascular system, these can all be addressed in a really general manner. Just stress those things and, and do it by recruiting a ton of muscle mass. And our legs are big masses of muscle, but you can recruit and put a bigger strain, recruit more muscle, put a bigger strain on the rest of the body by doing things other than cycling, doing whole body things. And, and this certainly qualifies. Uh, another pro would be just the resilience and durability that we talk about so often that even, even in a short race, I mean, I went over a, a 45, 50 minute criterium, you can see people start to break down. Their bodies are given out in ways other than their, their cardio pulmonary, all your, your cardio related systems and, and, and your leg muscles, there are other things that, that can start to fade, that can start to cost you. So building that resilience, that durability that, that will help you over the longer hauls 
is absolutely one of the benefits, one of the pros, even if those longer hauls are seemingly short in duration. And then uh, finally, just avoiding lopsided fitness. So uh, I think too many athletes see, see things in terms of what can strength training do for me versus endurance training rather than saying what can the two combined do to make me a better athlete. Just view them as, as something that come part, come part and parcel. These two things should be done concurrently all the time unless you're a very specific athlete. It's just to what degree you do them. And, and that brings us to the cons. Head of the list, I know what everyone's thinking is the interference effect. Uh, I'm going to magnify the interference effect and I'm going I'm to blunt some of the training adaptations on both sides of things. For most people, disregard the interference effect. Sadly, I think that's been overblown to the point where it, it likely leans detrimental mm-hmm. in nature. It's, it's not, not only to, to well-rounded fitness, but even to specific fitness because I think strength athletes who avoid cardio are leaving performance gains on the table. I think endurance athletes who avoid strength training are definitely leaving big, big gains on the table. The interference effect is mechanistic in nature. And, and what most of the literature demonstrates is that few, if any, actual decreases in performance for most athletes. High-level athletes pursuing very specific ends, maybe they should be really concerned about it or even just probably mildly concerned because the the real concern, I think, with most of us is if this concurrent approach actually overwhelms our physiological resources. What does it do to our recovery? How does it How does it add up? How does it stack up? If, if you're doing a lot and you're going to pile on strength training, that's going to that's just more. That's more of a physiological toll. So really the, the single concern I would have is fatigue in general, which brings me to, to my one question for Rich. Why the high intensity form of this interval training? Why not just strength training? Because if you're already doing, I'm guessing if you're doing a low volume plan, you're getting intensity on Tuesdays and Thursdays and you're getting a fair dose of intensity on Saturdays as well. That's already enough intensity over the course of a week. And now you're going to try to weave in another high intensity workout which no, nothing to say you can't try it, but I do think this is one of those lessons that uh, you, could, you can predict right now. It's, it's just going to run you down and probably not yield any sort of the benefit that you're actually pursuing. I do think strength training has a place. As Hannah mentioned, it's, it's absolutely necessary and beneficial, especially for aging athletes, female athletes, and ask me any athlete, period. But I, I don't think it has to be high intensity in nature for you to get what you want out of this and, and do – also keep in mind that when it is uh, heavy work, so so now we're going to veer away from the high intensity and just make it heavy strength training, which you know we talk about the benefits of that all the time. Yes, there has to be a framework in place. You can't just jump into the heavy lifts. You have to work up to them. But when you get to those heavy lifts, you'll start to notice there's a pretty big neural demand in, in terms of the – the, the, the central demand, so on your brain, your, your nervous system, et cetera, that you may not spring back from as readily as, as you think. You, you can really beat yourself up lifting heavy things in the gym, even if it's not a long workout or, or something that seems all that taxing and, and suffer the effects of that for days afterward. So th- these are things you're going to have to pay regardless of what sort of strength training you decide to do. You got to pay attention to what the, the layering on of those additional stressors yields. Hannah, you put down that you feel like hit is an often like overused term. Can you, mm-hmm. uh, can you expound on that? Because I, I kind of want to go down that alley with, with a point. Yeah. I just think hit has become this term that everyone uses for anything that's hard. 
Um, and that's not necessarily the case. You know, just because strength training is tiring doesn't mean that it's high intensity interval training. Um, so like for me, my strength is hard, but it's intentional. It's slow. It's not rushed. Um, and so by that nature, it's not hit training. Um, and so I just think, I, I don't know, I'd, I'd be curious whenever someone tells me that they're doing hit training, I always pause and ask them to explain exactly what they're mm. doing. And sometimes it is hit training, but more often than not, all they're using that is as a word that means hard training. Yeah, I've seen it misused quite often and really like to contrast it. Hannah talks about doing the objective with the session isn't to do it in any sort of time. The objective isn't to limit rest in between sets. And the objective also isn't to accumulate, uh, uh, you know, any sort of like a high number of repetitions necessarily or anything else. It's just to, to move weight in a specific way. Right. Whereas a high intensity interval training, uh, strength session is a huge amount of the focus is on maintaining a high amount of aerobic work throughout that whole process. So you're, you're, doing strength work, but you're probably doing it to the point where it's not really, really hard, like heavy weights or anything like that. And it allows you to move into the next thing very quickly with minimal rest. And you do that. And it's, I mean, uh, like I'm thinking of like orange theory classes and stuff, those sort of things are, they are fantastic for most people that are not like cyclists that are trying to get faster following a training plan because it combines both. And like Chad said, if you neglect one or the other, it's really tough. But in this case, since you're an athlete that has like a, a large amount of cardiovascular work, likely on the, on your plate, um, in this case, rich chances are, you've already got that taken care of and you're, you're better off separating them a bit. All that said, uh, whatever you end up doing, I also agree that you should still pair it the same way that Hannah pairs the training, uh, prioritize the cycling. If that's your goal and do this stuff after you've done your hard stuff. Uh, give yourself a little bit of time and definitely don't do it on days that are supposed to be easy. Um, so then that way the easy days are truly recuperative. Um, hopefully that's some good guidance. And if you want to know how strong you need to be, we have a strength training calculator for that. We'll link to it in the description below. This isn't saying that this isn't like a presidential fitness test when you were a kid in school or anything like that. Instead, it's just answering the question because a lot of athletes then get the question. Okay. So do I need to be like the meatheads in the gym that are, you know, bench pressing 400 pounds or what do I need to do? What's important. Uh, so Chad actually just put together what he felt like were a handful of benchmarks based on the type of riding you do and what sort of level that you want to be at. And it can be helpful to then set some goals that you can work toward with your basic strength stuff. And honestly, getting a coach that's well versed in balancing cycling training and strength training is so important. So we talk about it quite often, but like, um, Art O'Connor of Wukar fit, he's a friend of the podcast. He's a big time trainer road user too. Um, and a personal friend, but he does great stuff and works with a lot of great athletes. There's also Derek Teal of dialed health, big time trainer road user. You'll see his stuff on Instagram, puts out a lot of very useful content and has good strength programs that are designed in the context of cycling. I think all that stuff is really helpful. Um, when you're going to be considering that, uh, okay. Two more questions. Marty's this one's kind of, uh, this one will be quick. I think, uh, probably a dumb question. Marty says, but how much does direction matter on a road bike tire? Do you care which direction is facing when you put on a tire or do you just throw it on? 
Uh, Hannah, what do you do? And what or first, I guess, what tires do you use? And let's stem outside the context of a road tire and we'll get back to the road tire, but we don't necessarily have to adhere to that. Cause I think there's probably some principles we can learn. Yeah. Um, so I use, I use Kenda tires, um, on the road. I'm usually, since I'm not racing road, I'm usually using the Kenda fortitude, um, which is sort of their all season tire. And then on the mountain bike, I'm usually using a rush or a booster, um, or a, uh, karma two, uh, but in the context of this question, um, yeah, it matters. <laughs> pretty much point blank. Um, especially on the mountain bike, uh, not only for rolling resistance, which is probably the most obvious one is just the tire is designed to roll in a certain direction. That's the way the knobs are going. It's going to allow you to roll faster, but also in the context of cornering, which is the one that people often miss is if your corner knobs are facing the opposite direction, it's not going to allow you to utilize that tire for everything it has. So yes, it does matter, um, especially on the mountain bike. And the same thing applies on the road, just in a smaller, more minute context. Um, and also don't stop there. Line up your logos, line up the logo with the <laughs> valve stem, be pro. <laughs> yeah, honestly, that's so the lining up the, I know that people think it's just an aesthetic thing, but it's so Not. helpful for tracking mm -hmm. down flats. If you're running yep. tubes or anything else, you have punctures, uh, because then you at least have a reference point. So you, when you take off that tire, you can at least look back and say, I don't know where that hole was, but I remember it being around here. And then you can line it up with your valve stem and your logo and you know where your tire always was. So it can be quite helpful. Um, what I want to expound a bit on what you said, Hannah, with the traction side of things, and I'll use a mountain bike tire because it's easier to understand, but it even operates at a smaller scale, like you said on road, but yes, the knobs are ramped directionally that will help with rolling resistance, but also they're ramped directionally and in, in such a way so that when the tie, when the knob is under load, it doesn't deform to a certain degree that causes it to lose its structural integrity, but instead they design them so that when they are under load, they maintain structural integrity. And then as a result, what happens is your tire behaves like you should assume it should behave. <laughs> uh, and that's very helpful. Tires typically have, they view knob or one way to view knobs or texture or relief, even on a slick tire is they are layers of redundancy that you will go through systematically as you lean the tire over more. Basically, you get past one set of knobs and you get into another, and they're strategically designed as you roll further over to do different things based on that context of being leaned at that specific angle. What you'll see on mountain bike tires a lot of the time is they'll have their center knobs, then kind of a gap in between that and the side knobs, and the side knobs are more pronounced. And the reason for that is it has some knobs that will be present when you're just starting to lean the tire over, so then you still have traction, but then it'll have that gap so that your bike actually will kind of have like a slip zone, but really lock in really hard on those side knobs. It creates this polarization between a lower tire than a higher knob, and that can really help you have some traction. Uh, this is all designed to be directional as well. And you'll see in many cases, knobs will kind of start in the center and then the knobs will cascade in a V direction backward toward you. And the reason for this is as you're leaning over and as you're rolling the tire forward and it's not just static on the ground, it encounters these layers of redundancy or these knobs in ways that will save you from falling over. 
And the same thing happens with road tires, just at a much smaller degree. They design those shapes intentionally. It's not, you know, otherwise specialized or continental or Schwalbe would just put their logos all over their tires and stamp those into the rubber. The reason they're not stamped like that is because they know that specific shapes oriented in a specific way will help the tire maintain traction in those cornering scenarios. So even though some tires look like perfect slicks, they may be perfect slicks. It's still probably a good practice just to get used to because it'll build awareness that if you have a tire that really it does matter, then you're, that's part of your process and you don't mix, mix it up. So, um, yeah, that's a, I think that's the, the breakdown there. So Jacob's question, last one. Uh, I'm doing the cross country Olympic low volume plan. The normal weekly layout is two one hour sessions followed by a one and a half hour, more difficult session. I work weekends at a hospital on a hospital and I find it more convenient to do my more difficult, longer workout to start my week than at the end of the week. And typically what you'll find in most training plans, this is my own interjection here is that as you get toward like the end of the week, like the weekend will have the longer rise just because of that context. And then you know, your hard days will be spread, spread out a little bit, but you typically won't come in on your first day back with a hard day. And typically, you know, you'll kind of work your way into it, but that's all customizable. And you can do that on your training plan with trainer road. You can drag any days around so that your hard days are always on Tuesdays or your easy days are always on Tuesdays, etc. It's always customizable. So you can check that out. It's pretty cool. So Jacob's question are there any negative effects to training by doing this? And by doing this, what he's referring to in this case is moving those more difficult, longer workouts to the beginning of the week or front loading the week. Then there's an additional part. I also sometimes have to push workouts into the next week by taking workouts out of one week and adding into another week. Does that do anything positive or negative to my pre-built workout plans? So with all that said, front loading, Chad, I want to get into your thoughts on like pros and cons of doing your hardest or biggest workouts at the beginning of the week. Yeah, that that's the distinction too, is hardest versus biggest, because I pretty much front load any training plan I develop with the intention of reaping the benefits of freshness. So you come into the week and you have that Tuesday workout, and I try to make that the hardest workout. And it may not look like the hardest workout, and it's certainly not the longest workout because I table those for the weekends because that's when people typically have more time to do longer workouts. So that first workout is often enough the hardest workout, the most taxing workout, such that, again, you're freshest. And then as you kind of fade over the course of the week, the the workouts become mildly more achievable, or at least they're intended to feel that way even though you may not notice it because you're carrying fatigue from a prior workout. But if you need to switch things around, there's nothing wrong with it. Honestly, you could structure those weeks any way you want. If there are differences, they're going to be negligible ones. The big concern is that you do a workout, you have enough time to recover so that you can do the next workout productively. So how you, how you stage those is all good and fine, which means that when you talk about cramming what could be productive workouts into a subsequent week because you didn't get to them that week, it kind of, kind of, it's, it's cramming, it's makeup. Uh, that's where it gets super tricky. I mean, the, the stimulus, this isn't about getting the work done. It's about eliciting a stimulus, recovering so that you can adapt to that stimulus, coming back just a wee bit stronger, doing it again, and then eventually reaching a point where you need to have more time to adapt further, to come back even stronger to your next round of training. So it's, this is all just general, general adaptation. But if you're 
skipping workouts one week and then <laughs> trying to play catch up and doing all the workouts the next week, that that's not without value. I mean, there are times where you can block your training, but you're going to have to block your recovery following that training too. So if you do four workouts in a row because you didn't get to them the week prior, then you're not going to be able to bounce back after what's probably one or two scheduled days of recovery. You're probably going to need to double that, if not more. And then there's a question of what happened to that second, third, even fourth workout as your the, the workouts that, that, that you tacked on there or, or the workouts that got bumped because you tacked on workouts. Either way, they're, they're going to degrade in quality as you carry f- fatigue directly from one workout into the next, into the next, et cetera. And the best part about this when you're using trainer is you don't have to worry about makeup work. Uh, if you skip that workout for any reason, adaptive training is going to take care of it and give you an appropriate workout. Um, not just necessarily scoot it down the line. Sometimes that's what's best, but it's going to look at, you know, the rate of decay for that specific uh, zone for you and what sort of workouts would be best. It does a lot of stuff behind the scenes there with AI. It's pretty cool. So, so you don't have to worry about pushing things in and cramming in a week. I would, uh, I would not recommend doing that. And I'm sure you wouldn't either. You also mentioned earlier that you have this kind of like you, you don't do hard days back to back when you're talking about strength training, you know, do a hard day. Cause you'll know the next day is easy and it'll let you recover. Do you typically follow a pattern like that? And do you try to do the hardest workouts at any point in your week? For me, it changes all the time because my race schedule is ever fluctuating. So I feel like the biggest pattern that I usually see is in the off season when I'm laying the foundation for the year. Um, For this athlete in particular, I would be really curious if they could just move the entire week. Um, And by that, I mean, the days of the week are completely arbitrary. It's something that humans have made up. Your body has no idea whether it's a Monday or whether it's Thursday. And so I'd be really curious if they could still follow the exact training plan and just shift it so that the Monday workout is on Thursday and et cetera, et cetera, throughout the week. And so their week is still the exact week that was planned, just shifted over. Yeah. And absolutely. Like, uh, that's a really easy thing to do on the calendar. You just drag, click and drag on the days that you want to do your hard days on or your easy days. And you can just move it around and it'll change it for the rest of the training plan for you. And then if life intervenes, like you said, Hannah, and you need to change it up, you can always just drag and drop specific days of a week, you know, and, and make it easy that way when you're in the middle of the week. Uh, this is something that, uh, Jacob, I do as well. I try to do my hardest workouts in the beginning of the week. And then I taper off in terms of like what I view as hard. And honestly, sometimes the hardest workout that I'm that for some reason, it's just the one I fear the most that week. It might be an endurance ride. I don't know, but it's like, you know, a long ride. And I know I'm going to have to do it in the aero position on the TT bike. And you know, there's not many things more scary than that. So uh, as a result, I might do that one first and before a VO two workout, or it might change. So This is absolutely something that I encourage athletes to do, to be able to move things around and customize things, because if it's affecting your motivation or your, or your ability, then that's something to really keep in mind. And Jacob, I mentioned earlier on podcast days, I try to make those easy. You carrying this like a difficult weekend load at a hospital and everything else. And you probably don't want to go in completely cooked to that. And instead you want to go in with mental acuity Yeah, this is a great example. You have to consider life circumstances outside of training as well and what you want to be prepared for in life, what you're okay with going into maybe being a little foggy brain from a hard workout or flipping the coin on the other side. If life adds a bunch of stress, 
than like, for example, on podcast days, it's a lot of mental load for me. And I typically don't do well if I do my workout after that, if it's a really intense or demanding workout, it's tough for me. It's easier if I'm doing that on a day where I have less, if I have like big high consequence meetings all day, I'm drained after that mentally. So it'd be really tough for me to do those hard workouts. So it's important to adjust it to fit your lifestyle so that you can maintain motivation and like a level of productivity and ability across the, you know, across your entire life for the whole week. So so that would be uh, my advice. Uh, Good question, Jacob. Uh, Great one. Uh, Thanks y'all for being on here. Hannah, when's your next race? What are you preparing for? I'm racing the U.S. Cup at Vail Lake, uh, Temecula, California in not this weekend, but next weekend. Oh, we'll be in San Diego at the same time, just doing very different races. So oh, yeah, yeah, you'll be nice. <laughs> yeah. Cause I mean, Temecula is kind of San Diego. So uh, area ish. So mm-hmm. cool. That's awesome. Um, yeah. And then I'll be down at Oceanside that week. So if you're doing Oceanside or you're going to be at Oceanside, or if you're doing Vail Lake and you're going to be at Vail Lake, keep an eye out for Hannah at Vail Lake or the mountain bike race for myself at Oceanside. I'd love to see you. I'm just going to be wearing black kit, um, black bike, big shock, uh, with me. And, uh, yeah. So I, I might not be as conspicuous as normal. I'll have a trainer road hat on and very, very bright green shoes. If you see me on the run course. Um, but yeah, so that's, uh, you might not see me in trainer road kit though. So haven't found a tri kit that I really love yet. I'll report after I try this one at the race. So, uh, it's, I'm looking forward to it. All right. If you're listening to this podcast, one thing you can do that would hugely help us is share this podcast on Instagram with your friends. Just share a story that you were listening to it. Any moment that you found valuable, If you find this podcast valuable, if you share it this week, that would be hugely helpful for us. You can also rate and review the podcast on whatever podcast app you use. And we recommend Spotify because more people are finding the podcast there. Helps people find it. If we get a bunch of reviews this week, that means that it pushes it up in the search results and it makes it easier to find. And head to trainerroad.com if you want to get faster. We'll talk to you all next week. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, everybody. Bye.